everybody. Welcome to today's edition of Disability Inc. I'm Lori Podvesker here with Jessica Bacon from Montclair State University, who we've known at Include for years from the Arise Coalition. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So we're here today to talk about uh, defining disability and what that word means and if it means the same thing to everyone or not, including um, how disabled people define it and non-disabled. And the reason where that led us to you was this question came up within the New York City disability advocacy community. And Jean and I, Jean Mizutani, um, were intrigued with people's responses and realized that this is certainly not a one-size-fits-all model. Mm -hmm. Oh, the irony. Um, <laughs> uh, and so, you know, you came to mind right away, um, and uh, thank you for that. And um, before we dive right in, if you could just spend a couple minutes giving us your background and how you got here. Yeah, sure. Um, well, so it kind of all started in terms of uh, me entering this field when I was, I did my undergraduate at a small school in Ohio called the College of Worcester and was studying sociology and education. And I had a friend who actually asked me to come work at a summer camp in Connecticut uh, for adults with uh, disabilities. It was through the ARC. Um, so that was kind of my first entrance into the field. Um, and I noticed, you know, I didn't really know how to put words, but I noticed like a lot of these people were older adults coming out of institutions, and I noticed a lot of oppressive situations going on, but um, it, it kind of led me to find Syracuse University's program um, in disability studies and, you know, through some internet searching. And so I went there for my, initially just for my master's degree in cultural foundations of education and disability studies. Um, and Underachiever then, Jessica is, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I just couldn't really, I, I was working with such amazing professors and actually had started working with the local self-advocates um, who have really taught me pretty much everything I know. Um, so I, I, I just couldn't, wasn't ready to leave yet. So I stayed and did my doctorate there in special education. Um, what's kind of unique about Syracuse is they take a different approach to the field of special ed than a lot of other universities in the U.S. And it's a really, it's really a disability studies oriented to special education. Okay, wait, freeze. We got to unpack that. It's okay. a, can you say that again? Yes, it's a disability studies orientation to the field of special education rather than a more traditional framework of special education. Okay, wow. That's so cool. Because we talk about um, how there's a difference between special education and disabilities. Mm -hmm. And often um, that gets lost in almost every space, mm -hmm. and uh, that's so neat. Is that program still exist now? Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's probably one of the more well-known doctoral programs in the U.S. that really takes a more critical approach to, to the field that's, you know. So we still we still have our PhDs in special ed because that's the discourse, but that's it's like really... That's like pedagogy mostly, you're saying? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's the content, it's how it's taught. Um, you know, it's really, Syracuse is a unique place too because it was kind of the, place where the deinstitutionalization movement started. 
Um, so a lot of the faculty who had started the programs there and who worked there and that I got to work with um, many of them, um, like Doug Bicklin and Beth Ferry and Steve Taylor, um, they were, you know, really back in the 60s and 70s, you know, shutting down institutions and doing that kind of work. And disability studies was kind of emerging out of that, um, some of those movements, you know. Yeah, it makes total sense. Is there anywhere in the New York City area that has programs like that? Um, I don't know of any doctoral programs, but actually CUNY has a new um, disability studies undergraduate program. Right. Um, Merrill, Para, no, is that, am I saying the right Marriott Bates. Marriott Bates. I'm sorry. Merrill was the old disability study, or coordinator that I worked with at Lehman. Uh, yeah. Marriott Bates is the coordinator of that um, program. Cool. And it's an online program. Very cool. Yeah. Jessica, I'm going to get a little more personal for a second because yeah. I know if I was listening, this would help me um, contextualize your perspective, mm -hmm. which is, did you go to public schools growing up? I did, yeah. And, and my mom was an inclusion teacher in first grade. Ah, like it's in the water. When, I, when she listens later. Props <laughs> to Mama Bacon. Um, so I asked that because... Um, for all of us, our experiences growing up shape us, mm -hmm. and uh, often think about it for myself, uh, being in my late 40s, I have a twin brother on the spectrum, mm -hmm. what it was like, and what things are like now. So growing up in public schools on the East Coast? Oh, in Ohio. In Ohio, Midwest. Um, were students with disabilities integrated? Were they visible? What are the, uh, big school, small school? Uh, pretty small. It was a suburban district. Okay. Um, they were, there was a couple of students that I can recall uh, who had more physical disabilities, but other than that, I, I don't have much memory of integration. Wow, it sounds like things have really changed. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, sort of. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay. They have and they haven't. Exactly. Right? <laughs> um, we always say uh, we've come a long way, yet still have a far yeah. way to go, and I think that's very um, helpful. Thank you. So based on um, your history, mm -hmm. um, how do you define the word disability? Yeah, sure. So I think it's a really complex question um, that, you know, I think the dominant understanding and framework of when, when people hear the word disability is to immediately think of it as a medical diagnosis or a problem. Um, and so um, I really think it's, it's much more apt to consider disability a really complex interaction between a person and the kind of social sociocultural environment that they're embedded within. Um, we know that disabilities aren't um, the same in place to place. They aren't the same from one time period to another. Um, how we define disability is often what we call socially constructed in many ways. So it isn't to say that people don't live with, you know, um, differences that impact their lives, right? It isn't, and so I'll, I'll kind of get into the social model now because I think it helps to kind of explain this. Um, so as um, in Britain was kind of the origin of where the, the idea of the social model came. And they were very purposeful in detangling the idea of impairment from the word disability. Can you give us a time range of that? Um, I would say that idea probably started in the 60s, 70s, around civil rights era, yeah. Which makes sense. And is was uh, the deinstitutionalization of people with developmental disabilities in Europe and there, in England, um, around the same time as here. 
Um, I mean, I think different countries in Europe have kind of different histories. So certainly probably some of the more Western. But I mean, I know that there is certain countries that um, in Eastern Europe that are still, you know, have, you know, there's yeah. been recent a long expos. way to go. Yeah, the, there's been recent exposés on their institutions. But you know, we still have institutions in many states here in the U.S. too. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Sorry to cut you off. No, that's okay. Trying to get a timeline. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So the big idea to kind of um, so disability was really created or thought of as a as a political idea that's kind of separate from the impairment, right? So it isn't to say that people don't live with what they called impairments, but when people became disabled, it is because society judged them and treated them in a particular way. And so it was kind of thought of as an identity category rather than, um, you know, the, the problem located within the body. And, yeah. yeah, so I think you're talking about, like, uh, identity politics. Yeah, sure. And so for our audience, is there another group that we can just make a connection to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, like in terms of, um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of parallels between disability and the LGBTQ community. Um, you know, I think, I mean, it's actually that history and that, those interconnections are interesting too because, you know, it was, an, it was actually a disability to be, you know, not too long ago. They just took that out of the DSM, um, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, right? So, um, you know, it was actually considered a disability to be part of the LGBTQ community. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry to be taking no, this all over the place, but um, these questions um, come up often for us. And another example, uh, you know, that we come across as, as someone's eating disorder a disability, mm -hmm. as having cancer a disability, right, right. being sick, and you know, there is, um, what's the word I'm looking for, which is there is, uh, it's all interrelated, right? Because we're talking about the medical model. Right. And so um, the LGBTQ community is a great example. Um, we sometimes say here, um, we use the LGBT community as a role model in mm -hmm. terms of systemic advocacy yeah. and um, helps us shape our goals and uh, really have much respect to uh, the quality of um, people in that community's lives and the changes that have happened in the last yeah. couple of decades right. and hopefully we can get there too because yeah. I think in some ways it's easier to be uh, you know gay and or uh, transgendered than it is to be disabled which says a lot yeah you know yeah. well we talk about I mean so a colleague of mine um, Priya Lavani at Montclair State have been writing about how disability is never talked about in schools right at all it's it's always it's either like that's right it's a deficit or it's something we don't want to discuss with kids because it's a scary topic um, where you know other identities are really really readily discussed in terms of and, and people have do so much great civil rights work and you know justice so work true. around every other identity category in schools, but disability we just haven't gotten there yet with it. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with the medical, the the strength of the medical model. Absolutely, totally, right. Yeah. And um, so you were talking about um, 
medical model and then began to talk about the social model of disability. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so tell us more. Yeah, okay. So um, so the medical model is really, I mean, it's the one that we're all, I think, ingrained in. And, and maybe you don't even know you know it, but everybody knows it, right? Because it's, it's just what's around us. And so, I mean, that's really the idea that disability is a deficit. Disability is a medical problem. Disability is, you know, we define disability through doctors and through the medical field. Um, in schooling, you know, it applies that you have to, you know, be labeled with one of the 13 categories, which, you know, all have origins in kind of medical language. Just kind um, of stop you for a second. Uh, we're talking about the 13 disability education yeah, classes. special education under right. the IDEA. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, um, and so the medical model, if you, if you always see disability as a deficit and as a problem, you, your, your desire as a professional is to fix or cure or alleviate. The, as a human. Right, exactly, right, is to get rid of the problem. Um, and so I, our schools and, and the entire field of special education has really been built around that idea. Um, is that, you know, when we get kids who have a problem who don't fit the norm, then we, what we want to do is get rid of what's wrong with them. And so we spend our time and our efforts and our money trying to remediate kids. Um, and so the social model takes a different perspective, and it looks at disability as a, part, a natural part of human variation, right? And so um, it, it's something that is not a bad thing, right? It's, it, it could be a prideful thing. It could be... Um, you know, it can add value rather than always being a, a negative. Um, and the social model approach doesn't, sees, you know, the big problem of disability as the barriers that are put around a person. And so some examples of the barriers are inaccessible environments, inaccessible buildings, obviously a big issue here in New York City, um, attitudinal issues, right, so stigma about disability, um, how people are treated with disabilities, um, and, you know, kind of our, our bureaucratic structures don't do well with disability, right, because they're, you know, it, it, you know built on a kind of a cap capitalistic enterprise, right? It, it's around efficiency. Love you, Jessica. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and if you're, not, if you're not fitting into the norms of being an efficient human, that's right, right, then you're not seen as a productive citizen. Um, and so the goals of the social model are to remove those barriers rather than fix the person. Yeah, so, I mean, so helpful. So, preparing for this conversation, um, how I came to newly uh, make a distinction between the medical and social model, tell me if I'm wrong, is that the medical model looks at the individual, the disabled person, and that the social model looks at the environment in which disabled people are viewed. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I'm also sitting here thinking um, about how many conversations that I've had in my eight and a half years here with parents explaining the difference between diagnoses. Is mm -hmm. that a word? Diagnoses. Yeah, diagnoses, yeah. Yeah, diagnoses, I never have to say it. Um, and classifications, mm. um, because it's very confusing. Right, right. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, especially uh, talking with parents at different um, articulation points, a natural um, education transition points going into kindergarten, mm. going into middle school, right. going into high school, and how uh, classifications play into that, mm -hmm. um, even though they're not necessarily medically, right, but, you know, right. we often group kids by their uh, disabilities. Right. And we're going to come back to that yeah, in a second. Yeah. Um, and so... Um, so, yeah, can I add one other thing that I think yeah. is worth mentioning, too? So, 
um, in our field of disability studies, we often talk about both the social construction of disability as well as the social model of disability. Um, and so I think that that's another valuable point to bring up because, you know, disability is often and a, a socially constructed category, especially for many people. So I think, you know, there's a few good examples of how disability is socially constructed. Um, the first is actually, it was, I believe I'm getting the year correct, in 1974, and I think this is coming up again, um, they had changed, um, they, you know, the the definition of intellectual disability is, is has been historically based on IQ scores, right? And so, um, there was too many people getting labeled, yeah, right? DSM, yeah. Yep, for, with that label. And they, they were feeling that too many people were getting services and it was getting too expensive. So they actually changed the definition and moved it one standard deviation over. And I so, didn't know that. Yeah. So right now it's 70, right? Yeah, so it used to be 60? one standard deviation from 70, yeah. whatever I don't know that, what that is. is. Yeah, math isn't my thing. I'm yeah, a qualitative researcher. Yeah. Um, right but, on. <laughs> yeah. Um, but... Uh, Basically, the, the sentiment is that thousands of people were cured overnight of their intellectual disabilities. Because oh, of course, because IQs changed. change all the time. I'm being facetious. Listeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because wow. they changed the who qualified. The benchmarks. Yeah. And yeah. So, so I think that's a good example of how, you know, we think intellectual disability is a that's medical so thing, right? Yeah. That, it, it, that exists in a body. But really, right people make decisions about what disability is and what disability isn't. Yeah, which speaks to what you were saying earlier that as, um, you know, we don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. And as a result, that just perpetuates the medical model. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and I think the other really important thing to keep in mind, and, and this is the thing that I, I always get stuck on um, when, you know, so many people... Or advocate advocate to keep segregated spaces open, right? Because they're this group of kid needs this special. You're talking thing. in the education system. In, yeah. Okay. Exactly. Um, and we we often don't look at who actually fills those spaces and who gets labeled with those disabilities. So um, you know that we have to think about the overrepresentation of racial, mi you know, minority students in special education categories, right? So black males are three times more likely to get labeled with intellectual disabilities or emotional disturbance than. So true. I was know. just looking at the data from yeah. uh, the most recent uh, report from the Department of Education that they have to submit to City Council called yeah. Local Law Twenty Seven, in which. Um, in less than two months, we should get the last year's last school year data, um, which I'm very excited about. And um, for all the kids in the city who are classified as emotionally disturbed, which I think there's about ten thousand, yeah. fifty percent of them uh, are black. Yeah, and that is. Uh, and probably more are male than high, much higher. For sure. Yeah. And that's throughout the board. Yeah. Um, but that is um, almost 20% more than the number of black kids yeah. with IEPs right, right. and a total over-representation. Yeah, yeah. And on the flip side, and um, I think why I'm sensitive to it is because uh, I'm white. Um, yeah. Me listeners, too. in case you didn't know. Okay. And um, I have a son who's intellectually disabled. Mm -hmm. And looking at the um, demographic breakup of the kids classified with ID intellectually disabilities, yeah. less than 3% of that subpopulation, which is only 3% of all the kids with IEPs, yeah. 
are white. Right. right. Um, and very interesting. Yeah. Uh, about 13% of the total 1.2 student population in the city is white. Yeah. 13%. Right. So you could see all yeah. of the out of whack and the natural yeah. occurrences. Yeah, exactly. And, and then those kids are much more likely to be educated in something in a place like District 75 than a lot of, you know. So the, the inclusion rates for, you know, based on race and class are also really disproportionate and problematic. But, you know, so the reason I, I bring that into the conversation of social construction of disability is because, you know, we cannot assume that our disability categories are, are naturally occurring, right? Um, so you know, true. People are so making true. decisions, and they're complex how these decisions get made, right? The research, you know, on overrepresentation paints a really complex picture about why it happens. But, you know, every study I've read, and I and this is why I always discuss this with, you know, future teachers, you know, we, t we they study overrepresentation a lot in our program at Montclair State um, is because teachers are often the first point of referral for students and you know the majority teacher is a white female and they're interacting with students who don't look like them don't have the histories of them don't have cultural similar to them and they're often seeing those differences and equating it as disability um, or they don't know they don't have the tools to teach these kids and so they're they'd rather have those kids out of their room than do the work to you know, figure yeah. it out. Yeah, I mean, we often say here that um, much of the work that needs to be done around students with disability lays in general education. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. And not always the case, but from a cultural point of view, yeah. for sure. Um, and, you know, as uh, someone who's duly certified, um, I know my formal education did not give me the tools or the skill set mm -hmm. um, really to teach and and so the issues have to get peeled back even further than what we all can just see if you know what I'm saying yeah, yeah, um, yeah. In, in terms of credentials and uh, tests and, and um, coursework and all of that at the same time it's really impossible to um, educate teachers with all the information they need going it in tough. Um, yeah. but another podcast for another day, which yeah. would be a great topic, which I never would thought of. Um, <laughs> would you come back? Sure. Okay, great. Um, and so, um, let's talk about uh, <laughs> um, ableism. Mm -hmm. um, in, in your own words, can you define that? Yeah, sure. Um, so, ableism is kind of the idea that it is preferable in the world to be non-disabled than, than disabled. Um, and so, there's a, a quote um, by Tom Hare, who is a professor at Harvard. He's, he was the assistant secretary of education at one point. Anyways, he also wrote one of the only big policy reports right, about the New York, York City, City Department yeah, of Education exactly, special exactly. ed. Yeah, everybody should read it, 2008. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so he actually defines ableism as the way that it's preferable to be in the world as a non-disabled person so for instance it's preferable to walk through a building than roll through a building it's preferable to read you know print on a piece of paper than read braille and like the only reason that that's preferable is because that's the dominant, but it isn't actually better, right? It's not actually better to walk through this building than it is to use a wheelchair and move through the building. Um, and so ableism is the idea that we pre we prefer the non-disabled way of being in the world and we preju we're prejudiced against the disabled way of being and therefore there's, you know, a stigma associated with, with that. Um, and so 
um, you know, our, our whole, our structures are built around kind of those ableist ideas, um, you know. They're, they're discriminatory uh, indirectly or as a yeah. result. And, yeah. um, going back to uh, language and ableism and uh, always mindful of how certain terms are used. Uh, for example, we say somebody's blindsided. Mm, yeah. And like, you know, I never really thought about it until right. I had a kid with disabilities, until I started working here. And like... It's kind of not cool, right. you know? Also, some other things, and I'm, I'm pointing this out because these words are used this way in all of our lexicons, yes. um, and sometimes I think it's helpful just to um, become aware of that, right. you know? Um, and even, I shouldn't say even, Carly cut that. <laughs> uh, the word that I've become really um, sensitive to lately is crazy. Yeah. Um, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Yeah. And or you know, like March Madness, right? Like that's another. Exactly. Yeah. And we finally are getting to a place in um, our culture where it's not cool to say mentally retarded. Right. I mean, people don't say mentally retarded, but people use the word retarded for right. a synonym. Um, for things, people that are slow right. or just bad, bad, or, not yeah. making sense. Yeah. Um, and that the word crazy is yeah. parallel to that for people with mental health it issues. Is. Yeah. Um, so is that ableism? Yeah. I mean, I think absolutely because it's so ingrained that, you know, we can, we can equate disability with all of these, you know, disability words with all of these negative connotations. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, every playground insult, right, that's kind of ever been used has had its origin in the history of disability, right? So, like, even idiot, right, that was a medical term for people with disabilities. Moron, same thing. Imbecile. Imbecile, right? And so, you know, because our society, you know, treats disability as a negative thing, you know, we equate that language in the same way. And, you know, so there's people who say, you know, I, th I definitely think it's good that we change and get rid of you know, negative language like the word retarded, for instance. But, you know, I think there's a, some other fair points that people make that, you know, we're actually never going to change the the fact that this exists, right? So maybe intellectual disability will become the next playground insult if we don't actually change the situation for people with disabilities in society and in the world. So Truth, 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 right? Yeah, like, yeah. we need all of it. Um, and uh, it reminds me, like, my job here leading the policy work that... Um, it's less about policies, practices, and procedures changing than it is about culturally mm -hmm. moving the needle and shifting people's right. attitudes and Absolutely. views as well as expectations. Mm -hmm. And that ties into teachers as well. Yeah, um, for sure. And, you know, that is a good segue to the next question, which is how do these different models of disability uh, play into um, the special education process, meaning when students are evaluated mm -hmm. and you know if they meet the criteria for one of the 13 classifications when IEPs are developed, um, how placement decisions yeah. are made, how the continuum is utilized here in New York City. I don't know what it's like in New Jersey. If you could speak to that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, I think, you know, so we'll start with kind of the, the issue of getting kids labeled and assessed. And um, so if you've ever, which I'm sure you've read a million, right, if you, if you read the reports that the school psychologist writes um, about kids, 
and the um, the instruments that they use, you know, most of whom are made by Pearson, um, are all very deficit-based, right? And so the reports that they're writing and the ways so the ways that they're diagnosing kids is only for what they can't do. Um, and so I'm sorry, Jessica, only for what they can't do. Can't, cannot do. Yeah, yeah right. exactly. Um, and so because that's how disability is defined in the medical model, and in order to qualify really in the point. U.S., right, really you have point. to be, um, you have to define it as, as something lacking. And so that becomes what everybody gets, right? That becomes what goes into the beginning of the IEP and all of that, the present levels of performance. That sets the tone, the framework. It yep. does, yeah. And so um, that becomes kind of how people know who that kid is. And we miss all of the other stuff. I mean, so sure, yeah, now we have, there's supposed to be strengths and weaknesses, but rarely are the strengths emphasized. Um, rarely do you get authentic information from the kid themselves about what they like and who they are, or the families, right, in the IEP process. You know, that's a very, that's usually very tertiary information. Totally. Yeah. Or, or what we got when our guy was younger is he's handsome. And it's like, what does right. that have to do with anything? Yeah. And it's like, if that's all you got, we got big problems. Yeah, really. Yeah. But I think that's common. Something. Yeah. 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 But anyway, so carry on. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so that becomes, you know, how we see kids, and then that becomes... Um, how we think about so placement, so too, true. right? So yeah. if you only look at a, what a kid can't do, then, you know, your placement decisions are going to align to that deficit framework. And so, um, and, and also the labels, even though theoretically they're not supposed to make placement decisions based on labels, they often do. And that's the medical model. And that's the medical model, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a few promising practices in the U.S. that are picking up um, I mean, I, I, I still think we're in the trap of how kids get diagnosed, um, but... Say more on that. Um, well, because unless the IDEA gets rewritten, which we all know it's overdue to be rewritten, you know, and, and actually allows for a social model understanding of disability, which our other laws do, like the ADA, for instance, you know, you can be regarded as having right. a disability and be protected. Um, but that's also a civil rights law, not an entitlement law, which the special education, which we don't need to get into that, but it's a funding law. It's an entitlement law. Um, so where was I going with that? Um, so some, some promising practices I see in IEP frameworks are things like person-centered planning, right, where the kid is at the center, and we're looking at that person far beyond their label, right? Disability is one aspect of who they are, and in many regards could be considered a positive aspect of who they are. Um, but we look at the kid holistically, and they are the, they're driving who that kid is and what that kid desires for their future and their lives drives the decisions that are made about how that kid is educated. Um, and so, and then the family is the second person in charge. The professionals are at the outer end of the circle and really only are there to help implement what has been driven by the kid and the family. And so I think that's an example of a promising practice. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this question, which you may not have an answer because it's somewhat of a rhetorical question, okay. but how does that work in a city like New York when there's almost 300,000 students ages yeah. three through 21? Right. We have X amount of money. We have X amount of time. Um, Within our system, we have competing priorities uh, due to union rules, and I'm not, I am pro-union. Yeah, me too. Um, I, am, I am a member of a union. Yep. yep. I am anti-bad um, players 
which there are very few of. Right, so right. much respect. Yes. Um, so, so I understand. You're yeah. Um, so that being said, and um, again with my cynical hat on, uh, you know, studying government, which is very much about efficiency, not quality. Right. How do we do that? Yeah. Well, I mean. It's it's such a complex complicated question. Yeah, but and does is that within reach in places you know like the suburbs in New Jersey where there's smaller school districts and they have more resources yeah. due to the tax base. So here's here's my answer that is going to be reasonably unpractical. It's okay. <laughs> We're big into the disconnect between theory and practice. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, is that you know our system needs a fundamental overhaul. Right. Because our system is run on a framework of, you know, the the efficiency and the test scores are what we should be here for. And it isn't about the kids. Um, and I actually think that there it, we can look to other countries that like? in Europe, for instance. So there's this document. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's called the Index for Inclusion. No. So it kind of, this kind of this actually relates to the social model, but I'm kind of going going to go a little on a side tangent. Right there with you. Um, so in my in my way of understanding the idea of inclusion, there's actually two different approaches to even inclusive reform. There's one that takes for granted the medical model and fits a couple more kids with disabilities into general ed spaces, right? And so that's that's kind of where we are, I think, right now in the US with pushing for inclusion, right? I'm gonna stop you and, and dig even further. Okay. I suspect only kids of with certain disabilities or certain other privileges, right? Yeah. Well, wealthy Thank you. white Thank you. families Thank you. are the ones who tend to fight for their kids to be included into certain spaces yeah. that other kids yeah. aren't, right? And the disability hierarchy plays out absolutely. full force. Absolutely. That. Okay. Yes, absolutely. I agree completely with that. Um, and so everybody can drink now yeah. as a result. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, I, I think a good example, and because I've done some research here in New York City um, on the small school movement and... Could our readers find that anywhere? Yeah, actually, I have an, a recently published article in the Journal of Disability in Society on the um, small school movement in New York City. Is that publicly accessible? It, it would be... Uh, you kind of have to subscribe to a journal, but I could probably make it uh, yeah, accessible yeah, for your people. So, yeah, so I get a certain, I get tons of copies to share. Great. If anybody's interested, please yeah. reach out to me, Laurie Podvesker at Include. Um, you can find my email address on the website. It's lpodvesker at includenyc.org. Yeah, I would love to share that. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I found doing that research was that um, during the small school movement, a couple of, you know, schools were likely to, or were open to taking a couple of kids, right, when they were kind of forced to include. So originally they didn't even have to take kids with disabilities. And then as the, the reform happened, right, the special ed reform in New York City, schools were required to take more kids with disabilities. This began in 2010. Yes, exactly. And so schools would take kids, but they wouldn't take the kids that they knew had more significant disabilities, right? They didn't, there was a lot of ways that they only took a couple of kids who fit what we they were already doing. We still talk about this doing. almost every day, yeah. especially in the beginning of the school year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, and then what happened to the large historical schools, right, that they ended up taking all the kids that the, uh, the small take. schools were able to push out. And so that's how they ended up becoming constructed as failing schools, right? Failing schools isn't like a natural thing either, right? That's a something that, 
our society has created through testing and movements and accountability systems and all of that. And media spin. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and so, um, so, so that's kind of an example, I think, here in, locally where, um, you know, that version of inclusion happened. And then they say, okay, so we check our box and we included a couple of more kids. Um, they also changed the funding formula to do that, yeah, exactly. which was to incentivize um, schools in uh, doing the right thing. Yeah. So that's what I call an incrementalist approach okay. or a reductionist approach to inclusion. I've actually, I actually have a a chapter about this as well, and in, in the new that's good language Sage Handbook of Inclusion. If anyone, but anyways, I'm not trying to promote you Sage can, you Journal. Can, you can cut that. Um, so anyways, um, so the, so that's one way of doing inclusion, right? Is we still rely on the medical model. We're actually not disrupting how schools work or the efficiency of schools. So what the index for inclusion and what a lot of countries are doing in, in um, across Europe is they're using this document and they're actually fundamentally restructuring how schools um, work, exist, and operate from the bottom up. Mm. Um, and it's, re it's, re it's very interesting. And it's a much more values-oriented approach to restructuring how all kids, right? Disability is one aspect of diversity in this framework of inclusion, too, um, where we're really thinking about how do we meet the needs of a diversity of humans, right? And how do we change our schools and the entire way schools operate and work to fit the needs of everybody. So am I hearing from you, this aligns more with the social model of disability than the medical? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. You yeah. know, and I think you and I talked about this briefly on our uh, pre-call, which is um, here at Include and others within, you know, New York City advocacy community pushing for students with disabilities to be included um, more in citywide diversity initiatives. Mm, absolutely. Um, the current initiatives on diversity focus on uh, the student population being more diversified in each school, not as a system, and it's focusing mostly on middle schools and high right. schools right. and what we've been trying to draw attention to, and I'll probably um, be saying the same thing 30 years from now, and maybe my last dying words, um, is that you know diversity is not just about class and race, um, and that students with disabilities are a minority group and a yeah. very large minority group. And here in the city, it's almost 20%, 20%, yeah. which is way higher than the natural occurrence, which goes into yeah, the over-representation. Yeah. yeah, and the disproportionality. But um, it's a start. And, you know, I think what you are speaking to, um, you know, is about both the cultural changes and the policy changes. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm, right. you know, here I think we are just scratching at the far, far surface of right. the cultural aspect. Yeah. Um, and I get it, but yet it's really hard. Um, and also as a white woman going into these conversations, talking about the need for more diversity, right. as, a, as a privileged person, it's, um, I have a lot to unpack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, you know, you were talking about um, Solutions. Mm -hmm. um, and do you think that New York City is capable of adopting any of that? Well, I mean, 
I guess like system systemically is the challenge, right? So I think yeah. there can be pockets of change, right, within particular schools or you know maybe within particular neighborhoods. But I also but stuff think like that costs a lot of money. Um, so the research that I've read is perhaps it, potentially to you know rethink how we do schoolings might cost some money in the in the beginning. In up, front. The, up front, but over time, it doesn't cost more to include more kids. It's a it's a way of it's rethinking how we use personnel. Um, so there's been some interesting research on you know inclusive school reform where we actually totally rethink how every human who's in that building is used, right? And so instead of having our rooms filled with, you know, the special ed teachers here and, you know, this other person there, everybody's just looked at and rethought and, and kind of moved around. And we can, and that actually, ideally, you mentioned natural proportions, right? We're not overloading. I mean, I think this is where New York City's kind of got caught with the with their particular LRE continuum is they have these co-taught rooms, right, which do promote inclusion, but they allow up to 40% of kids with IEPs in them. And so it kind of, so then it's not, it's not as far on the uh, LRE continuum as a gen ed class with one or two kids with disabilities because the pace tends to still be slower in those classrooms. And then the schools tend to see them as, well, we don't, you know, yes, their ratios and their formulas are still 60-40, but it's still like a slower paced class a lot of the time, right? Rather than using the idea of natural proportions and putting kids with disabilities in all classrooms with, for instance, duly certified teachers or push in, you know, consultative support, those kinds of things. That's a great example. Thank you. Um, so. We don't have much time left, but back to language for a second, because it never occurred to me until I was just uh, listening to you. And so um, terminology, uh, students with special needs mm -hmm. versus students with disabilities. Right. And, um, you know, and language has evolved. Yeah. And language has power. And over the years, um, you know, we here at Include, um, started to say students with disabilities more mm -hmm. than students with special needs. And part of the reasoning is, is that by saying the needs of uh, disabled students are special, we're perpetualizing uh, our students being marginalized because right. we're saying they're different. It's yeah. kind of antithetic to inclusion. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I always fall back on, you know, in New York State, education regulations that says students with disabilities. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I do it for efficiency reasons and other times I spell it out for people because people don't even know it, right? right? And so it just occurred to me, special education, does that do the same thing? Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's a euphemism, right? And yeah. So, because we're afraid to say disability. And I think I think that's where it comes from, right? I think it comes from this from ableism, from the, from the fear to talk about disability. And so we call it anything but what it is um, and you know instead of something that somebody can be proud of we're gonna say well you're just special um, and so I think that, that that's where it comes from and I think the other thing with language right it's not you know I, 
it's not a total, you know, everybody's not agreeing between identity-first language and, and people-first language either, right? So some people who are part of the disability community don't want pe to use people-first. You know, I think it's a choice and people should ask people what they want to be called and all of that. Um, but, you know, some people prefer to say I'm a disabled person than a person with a disability because they're proud of their disability. They don't want to have that become, you know, a secondary thing where, you know, other people may prefer people first language. Oh, totally. Yeah. We talk about this a lot. Yeah. And um, as, you know, I curate our email that goes out to people right. and often am mindful of how we um, title articles mm. that get sent out to like 24,000 people, right. right? And so what we've been doing is mixing it up. So we'll say, you know, an autistic kid did this, or then yeah. we'll say, you know, a kid with learning disabilities did that. Yeah. Um, but it's tricky. Yeah. Uh, and the yeah. irony is it's really hard to be inclusive uh, of language. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I write, actually, journals, yeah. um, some will allow you to go back and forth, which is what we usually do as a political decision. Um, but APA guidelines right? requires people first. So if the journal is strict to APA, they often won't let you go back and forth, even with a fit footnote to explain it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so wow. 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 I mean, that is really telling about where we still are yeah. culturally, yeah. Um, and in the world of academics and people who are enlightened. Yeah. Um, so I think another important thing, and I think it's important here in New York City too, um, as well in New Jersey, is to think about how. So we're talking about. Um, making a cultural change in the system, right, before. And I think one of the, you know, important ways to do that is through teacher preparation and also through professional development. Um, and so I think we're becoming at a really interesting point. I, I follow a lot of the job postings for, for future faculty and, you know, I write, and now I'm actually, it's kind of what I'm helping, like, younger doc students write letters for, for jobs and stuff. So I have a good, you know, take on the way that even um, what universities are looking for in terms of That's hiring so cool. faculty, and they're looking a lot more now for a disability studies perspective because what they've seen is that teaching, when, when we're preparing students, teaching students to see, you know, disability as you know, not a not just a negative thing, and seeing disability through a social model perspective, they become able and motivated to remove barriers for kids. You're right. Figure out how to make our classrooms work where we're di we're able to differentiate. Right. So inclusion only works when teachers know how to meet a lot of different um, academic levels, ability levels. You know, other needs. Um, in Much one space. easier said than done. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I'm not saying it's okay. easy. I'm at not all. saying you're <laughs> Yeah. But training students to first see disability is not a bad thing. Um, we, you know, actually at Montclair State, um, I coordinate a post-secondary program, and there's several here in New York City, too, where we have students with intellectual disabilities um, in classes with students, and um, they get to know a, you know, a person with a more significant disability as a peer rather than just somebody that they're going to teach one day, and it allows them to see people as whole people. So important. Um, and, you know, and so I think when we're train when we train students to first understand the social model, that's where, you know, we, we do a whole introductory class really on disability studies and the social model. Your students at Montclair that you work with, are they in programs to be dually certified yes. in gen ed and special ed? Yeah, they're all getting dual certified. Um, 
not we we do have a couple of single cert, but but ninety percent of our students at this point are dual certified. Syracuse only dually certifies um, people. So um, yeah, so then once they see disability as a positive thing and they understand the social model, they understand the history of disability, they understand, you know, they read a ton of first person perspectives, right? So I mean I think that's important for me to say too, right? Yeah. Is, um, sure. You know, I identify as an able-bodied person, but, you know, what I know is what I know because of people with disabilities, you know, explaining things or me reading, you know, understanding. So, you know, I have to give the credit where the, <laughs> the credit is due. Um, so, you know, I think that allows for teachers to enter a classroom and not just see the kid with a disability as a burden, to, for them as a teacher, but as somebody that they can understand, get to know, you know, understand through a holistic strength-based way, and then they can figure out how to teach in a way that meets, you know, everybody's needs in the room. So they can figure out how to use universal design. They can figure out how to differentiate for their students. They can figure out how to remove From the beginning, the instead of integrating that, these students afterwards, which is very common here, mm -hmm. which is we are not... Right. I mean, there's so many parallels, but yeah. not part of the um, conversation from the beginning. However, uh, do you want to throw props to this current administration for um, integrating special education more into academics than in years past? Yeah, that's good. Um, it is. It's really good. and something we've been pushing for for a long time. Um, so, uh, question. Most of your students, how old are they? Or age range? Um, so, well, I coordinate um, our dual certification program. So they're, they usually start as uh, juniors in, into the teacher ed program. So they're like... And undergrad. 19. So they're like 19, 20. Yeah. And then we also have graduate programs. So yeah. I teach undergrad and grad students. So the reason I'm asking this is because, um, <laughs> you know, uh, thank goodness we've evolved yes. um, <laughs> uh, in many ways. Uh, but I still think it speaks a lot that 19 and 20 year olds didn't have more firsthand experiences themselves yeah. in school 10 years ago. Right. Um, you know, so. Um, yeah. Well, New Jersey is 49th out of 50 for being the most, segregating the most kids with disabilities in the country. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's terrible. And I'm not placing blame of what I'm about to ask because it drives me nuts whenever we're in Albany that New York City is the reason why all, the state is not doing well on educating students with disabilities. Right. Not true, people. Not true. <laughs> um, uh, so does, is their rhetoric around, you know, places like Camden and Patterson and Newark mm -hmm. uh, for being the reasons for that? It's not so much that. Actually, what's interesting in New Jersey, and I think it's... How many school districts are there? Do you know? Oh, there's so many. Well, this is part of the problem in New Jersey is every tiny little town has its own district. So there's it's it's there's way more than there should be. I don't, I'm not going to even try to guess because I'll get yeah. the number wrong. Um, but We have over 700 in New yeah. York State. Right. And New York City is the largest one in the country, probably the largest one in the world. Right. But yet we're still considered one LEA, one school district, yeah. the same way as yeah. Scarsdale. Right, right. Um, yeah, so um, New Jersey has a ton of uh, often for-profit uh, segregated ABA run schools for kids with autism that do no academics and um, I mean I've been into plenty and so actually we they, they do more out of district placements than any other state which I think leads to a lot of the segregation is issues um, 
I mean, it's certainly not. I mean, there's just, like, it's just the culture and the history. Yeah, of, but Jessica, tell me this because I need to hear it, which is that the struggle for parents in New Jersey with resources is the same mm -hmm. for parents without resources in New Jersey and here. Meaning that if a public school system can't appropriately educate a kid, right. that the public school system fights back hard on placing kids outside. No, I would say not. Not, okay. not in the same way as here. Um, I think they're less resistant. They're actually they often promote it because they don't want to. Interesting. Yeah, because I, I think. That's not what we hear. Interesting. It, oh, it's not? Yeah, I mean, no, no, but you're on the ground. We're not on the ground. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, and mine and people is don't come to us when things are going well. So. Right, right. And mine is really, you know, it's off a few examples. It's not necessarily. More than we something have. I've heard. <laughs> um, but I, you know, from, from a few examples anyways that I've heard, um, districts just don't want to do the work to figure out how to educate these students, so they'd rather just throw a lot of money at sending them out of district. Yeah. Bananas. Bananas. Um, okay. Uh, another rhetorical question to throw out to you. Because um, this, too, is um, parallel to language that people use and that I don't think there's... Well, let me reframe. I'm going to ask you about curing people with disability and cures okay. and, you know, and your views because, you know, for parents of kids with um, medical conditions that are involved mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. kids, these same kids also have developmental disabilities, mm -hmm. you know, um, who am I to say, like, you shouldn't be out there trying to find money to fund research right. for this to be cured. Right. Right. Um, but on this same hand it's like are we saying that there's something wrong with these kids as is yeah, yeah and so what are your thoughts on that yeah um well i so i think it's rarely the kids themselves who are the ones really good distinction fighting for the cure right so it's it tends to be you know families are often right so you know, and, and it isn't to say that people's lives aren't challenging because of, you know, certain things that disability brings up. Um, and, I, and I honestly think, you know, certain am amount of the challenges has to do with our problems in society, right? I mean, I, I would say probably 70% of, you know, whatever is, it, you know, a I'll good go higher amount. higher than that. Yeah. yeah. A good amount of the, the, the challenges families and kids face is because of the barriers and the attitudes and the prejudices and the problems in society. But it isn't all of it. There are other real challenges. Um, but I don't think it's usually the, the, the people with disabilities who are out there fighting for these large the organizations yeah, 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 yeah. To, to cure or to fix who fix them, right? It's usually the parents who aren't living it. Um, I think there's plenty of people with disabilities who would say that they don't want to cure um, because they're happy with who they are, but it doesn't mean that there aren't people who, who would, you know, welcome that as well. Um, I think that the problem is, is we put so much emphasis and so much money into the fixing and the curing that it continues the conception that disability is always a problem, right? The, you know, I, I'll use Autism Speaks as an example. You can edit that later if you need to. No, um, not <laughs> um, So, you know, most of what Autism Speaks advocates for is for 
Akira. Um, most of their funding goes to Akira. They have very few people who are, um, you know, who actually have autism that are in any leadership roles within the organization. This changed through the years, so, right? I think it's gotten a little bit better. they changed their mission statement recently yeah. I could be wrong. yeah but a lot of their advertising is still you know it so so not only are they um you know putting most of the money that they get into research you know they're also advertising that the problem is that you know one out of every 68 kids we got to do right, something about this exactly. it's an epidemic right exactly. my own feeling is that is that that is bs right and it perpetuates That's the right. deficit That's right. understanding really of autism, right? That's so really good point. it's and and it, they're the ones who are in the schools, yep. right? The lighted up blue campaigns yep. and all of that, and, and yep. people think it's it's innocuous or you know it's a good thing to do because it has to do with disability. But it's you know there's other. So I always say you know if a school wants to take on you know, taught having a conversation about autism or doing a fundraiser, like, bring in autism, uh, the Autism Self-Advocacy Network, right, as the... Is it a national network? It is, okay. yeah. And they and they actually have on their webpage, you know, other ways of, um, you know, doing school campaigns that actually go to the, go to services for people living with autism rather than spending all of their money um, fighting. And it's, you know, the, almost none of the ideas for schools on Autism Speaks webpage um, have anything to do with promoting a, a positive understanding of disability, right? Yeah, it's a deficit base that it you're is, talking about. Yeah. yeah, interesting. I mean, people are always surprised when I share with them the small percentage of students who are classified with autism because of organizations such as Autism Speaks. Mm -hmm. um, and um, there's part of me that gets angry about it, but I always chalk it up to being jealous. Because yeah. um, I would love for um, there to be more of a presence or more of a media campaign or more of a social campaign uh, about all people with disabilities, yeah. and I know it doesn't work like that. Um, and you know, even more so in today's age with the internet, that um, we get divided yeah. um, based on disability, yeah. um, or based on uh, hyperlocation, or based on systems. Mm -hmm. And so we're fragmented mm -hmm. in a really big way. Right. And as a parent of a kid with an intellectual disability, I would love to see like positive right. um, imagery yeah. and messaging yeah. um, and, and not, you know, one based on the medical model or pity and, right. you know, right. there's all different kinds of models yeah. of disability. Yeah. Um, well, I think if we can get more, like if schools wanted to, you know, ha bring in adults who have great lives who have disabilities right. and they can talk to kids and be role models and you know talk about the positive aspects of disability those kinds of campaigns i think totally um and, and are you right if we have one more question yeah, yeah totally. um because i realized we didn't talk about um the relationship of uh, people with developmental disabilities being institutionalized in the medical model yeah um, um right you know and how I would imagine that there's a huge correlation. Up until the past 40 years, uh, kids who we see mostly in District 75 programs, mm -hmm. kids with developmental disabilities, autism, intellectual disabilities, maybe um, multiple disabilities, uh, epilepsy, um, 
were institutionalized. They didn't live at home and within the From communities. The that they came out of the womb. That's often. right. Yeah. I mean, again, in my late 40s, I remember my mom having a few friends who had kids like mine mm -hmm. um, that nobody ever, ever spoke about. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the... Um, the narrative was, you know, they have a kid with lots of problems. Mm -hmm. And I don't talk, this is my mom, I remember her saying verbatim, I don't talk to so-and-so about it because it's too upsetting. Mm -hmm. And then it became about the mother's deficits and not yeah. even the kids. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think that's important because we've yeah. seen that a little removed now. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, this all plays into how society views people with disabilities yeah. because they were often hidden. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, there was no services. So right. even if a family had an, an extreme desire to keep, the, you know, I mean, obviously some people did, right? They didn't People with resources. Yes. But the Pearl Bucks, the Kennedys, yeah, people exactly, like that. Exactly, exactly. But if you wanted to keep your kid home and they had significant needs, then it was all on you. There was no system of support for families at all to keep, you know, I mean, the parent movement really changed that, right? I mean, the, the original art, right, that was started by parents because they wanted to keep their kids home. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think we still see that played out within the public uh, school system here in New York yeah. City, yeah. in which kids who are in District 75 programs, which is about 25,000 of them, are uh, grossly uh, segregated. Yeah. You know, students in D75 programs are housed on one floor in co-located buildings. They don't get out. They don't even use the same doorway to get in and out of the school. Yeah. And it, it, it's it's not okay. And, yeah. and sometimes, you know, um, very often, sadly, if you walk by a school building with a District 75 program, you wouldn't even know it. Yeah. Um, and, and that's part of the cultural issues right, right. that just perpetuates that. Yeah, I'll say one other thing I think that's, that's important. And this was, you know, this was said, have you ever seen the book Christmas in Purgatory by, so it was, it's an expose, it was like an early expose um, on institutions. And, Christmas in Purgatory. Yeah, so the author is Bob Bogdan, um, and, and Fred Kaplan was the photographer. So basically they walked into institutions, and they just took pictures. Late uh, 70s? Yeah, okay. 70s, mid-70s maybe. Um, and they, so anyway, so they, you know, the, the, the images are really disturbing, but one of the passages in the book talks about how, um, you know, these kids are thought of needing to be in this, in this setting because they're considered so disabled that they couldn't function anywhere else. But if you put the same kid in a different context, they can flourish, <laughs> right? And so we, we justify their being in that place because of the, the supposed significance of their disability without... That comes up all the time, everywhere. Yeah, without ever thinking about how significant disability doesn't be, isn't so significant when kids are given opportunity to learn and grow and thrive and be in the world. And I think that we can make so many parallels to the segregated special ed system, right? So, you know, it's this idea of, you know, these kids have to be in this space, it's good for them, right? it's this it's this idea of like benevolence or something like we're doing what's best for kids we're protecting them without follow equality yeah and, and we, we want equity not equality exactly right and you know there's no the kids are are presumed to lack 
competence and ability, right? Yep. But when we put them in a different setting where they have opportunity to learn and to thrive and to do things, people are like, wow, this kid really can learn, you know, they're, they're shocked. I mean, we're, we're actually, we see this with our college, the, the college program is, you know, these, the kids who come to our college program. With intellectual disabilities. Yeah, with intellectual yeah. disabilities. They are coming from mostly segregated systems. Um, you know, I mean, maybe not 100%, maybe yeah. not quite District 75 segregation levels, but, you know, a lot of their classes were yeah, segregated. Relatively. Yeah, they didn't have a lot of opportunity to do advanced studies. They're, we put them in a college class and they're thriving. They're doing things that nobody thought they could ever do. And people are like, wow, I didn't know. Because everybody assumed incompetence. Exactly. And then when they're given the opportunity to demonstrate really high-level, college-level work, they're doing it and, and just shocking everybody around them. But it's because of the context, right? So I think with inclusion, yeah, totally. it's like all of these kids that we think need this separate space would do really well if we gave them opportunities in other spaces. Totally. I also think that we forget as, as humans that each of us is smart in some ways yeah. and other ways uh, less, I don't even want to say smart, but not as quick, shall yeah. we say. Yeah. Um, and we lose sight of that. Yeah. And I think, you know, by changing the environment for some kids, uh, any kid, yeah. disabled or not, um, allows other parts of their identity to flourish yeah, but yeah. if we don't give them access right. it doesn't happen yeah, yeah. Um, and we often drive you know like literacy drives so much right if a kid can't read in a very traditional way that's right we often assume they can't do anything else they couldn't possibly be good at science or math or you know art or anything if they can't read off of a textbook so true you know, so, so true um so we're just about out of time jessica yeah. thank you so much yeah. for being with it's us today fun. and weighing in about how we define disability <laughs> and uh, many other things uh we encourage everyone listening to think about their own definitions and hope our conversation deepens each of our sensibilities and awareness how we see and view people with disabilities um and please look to our website um, for when our next podcast will be. Uh, thank you.